This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Michael Livingston, who is a professor of English at the Citadel, and he's also Secretary General of the U.S. Commission on Military History. We're going to talk about one of his recent books, Origins of the Wheel of Time, the legends and mythologies that inspired Robert Jordan. Michael, welcome back to the journal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Third time here. I love it every time. Some of our listeners might not be familiar with Robert Jordan. Right. And so you need to sort of tell us about this guy who came from South Carolina and built this fantasy world that sold 12 million copies of his books. Yeah. So you know, Robert Jordan is the pen name of James Oliver Agnew Jr., who uh, grew up in Charleston. Uh, he was a graduate of the Citadel. He was a veteran student at the Citadel, which is where I teach. And he writes a number of books, but most famously is this fantasy series, The Wheel of Time, mm -hmm. uh, which is the, depending on how you count it, the sixth something like that, best-selling fantasy series of all time. Uh, enormously popular. Millions and millions of copies sold. Uh, millions of readers around the world. Uh, now an Amazon Prime uh, TV show. Second season should be coming out, uh, you know, in six months or something like that. So, yeah, he's, he's uh, kind of a worldwide publishing phenomenon. And, yeah, he went to the school I went to, and I actually was reading him back at the age of, like, 15. I, I started reading these books. So I've actually had a long-standing connection to this, to the present day. In your book, Origin of the Wheel of Time, you mentioned that he went in the service, served in Vietnam, and that had an impact on him and why he ended up doing what he did. Yeah. One of the things I thought was important to do with the book, right, is I want to introduce people to who this man was and how he did what he did. And part of that is to talk about his his biography from his childhood, uh, growing up with with not very much in in Charleston, did not grow up with money at all. Um, ends up going to Vietnam, and he experiences warfare as a helicopter gunner. Uh, you know, does things he he may not be proud of. Um, I mean, he was proud of serving his country, but right acts taken in the name of that may not be something that you you wish to remember necessarily. And that experience you know, stuck with him as, of course, it it, it will and, and perhaps should, you know, when you have these kind of experiences. And he incorporated that into his, into his writing life, into his literature, which is something that lots of, of people do, right? So, um, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, another very famous fantasy writer, writes Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. Uh, he'd been at the Battle of the Somme. And it's, a pretty clear line between what he experiences at the Battle of the Somme and what he is portraying in his fiction. You know, so I actually write an article uh, in graduate school called The Shell-Shocked Hobbit, talking about how Frodo Baggins, who's a, a main character in Lord of the Rings, is essentially suffering from shell shock. And that writing that is a way for Tolkien to process his own experiences of war and his own trauma. Uh, he's able to do this through fantasy, and it's kind of like a safe space to do that because it's talking about something that's not real and yet can filter those real things. Jordan went to the Citadel, but when he was in Vietnam, he was an enlisted man. Did he not graduate from the Citadel? He went to the Citadel after returning from Vietnam. Oh, after Vietnam. Yes, he comes back as a veteran student, um, comes to the Citadel, gets a degree in engineering and uh, in physics, and in particular, and uh, goes then and gets a job working on naval subs at the Charleston Naval Base. And, uh, and it's there that he has a horrific accident, um, messes up his leg very badly, and while recovering in the hospital, decides he's going to try his hand at writing. Well, is this a true story? Is this part of the myth that he was there in the hospital and his wife comes in and he's reading somebody's fantasy title and he says... Hell, I can write better than this. <laughs> uh, he basically does say this. He's not married at the time. Uh, but yeah, he's reading one of these, uh, a, a work of fiction. And, and yeah, he thinks, God, this is this is garbage. You know, I could, I could absolutely do better than this. Throws it across the room. And then sort of decided, yeah, put your money where your mouth is, right? You know, try it out and see. 
And he does end up writing some novel, early novels that are not published until much later. And through the course of trying to get himself into the publishing industry, ends up meeting uh, the woman he marries, Harriet, who is was was already independently one of the greatest editors of science fiction and fantasy on the planet uh, and happened to have returned to Charleston from New York. And they end up kind of meeting by happenstance through a, right. through a book dealer. Okay, he's trying to publish his novels. Yeah. But how does she get a hold of his manuscript? So she goes to a bookstore and he had gone to that bookstore. And when he goes to that bookstore, he happens to mention that he's been writing this story kind of thing. Uh, and the book, bookseller remembers that. When she shows up, the bookseller says to Harriet, you know, there's this guy who comes in every once in a while who's, who's writing some books. I know you're looking for some. Maybe I could you know, connect you guys. Uh, Harriet leaves her, her name on a handwritten, she didn't have business cards, handwritten little piece of paper, you know, well, give him this. And he did and, and actually made the call. And so he pitches her on his ideas. Um, she tells the story they, they weren't particularly good, uh, but she did read his, one of his early manuscripts and realizes he can write, uh, he can do this. We just got to kind of find the right story. And the, the first story that they end up kind of working together with is actually a story about South Carolina. It's uh, the Fallon series, uh, and it's all set here in in the South, in the American Revolution. It tells the Southern story of the American Revolution in fiction. And how does that involve evolve, rather, into the Wheel of Time? He wanted to write fantasy. Like, well, he wanted to write lots of things. He had, he had written an early Western that's never been published, but he'd also written a fantasy that never been published, and she was well-connected with, or worked for, I should say, Tor Books, which is the, the now the largest publisher of science fiction and fantasy in the world. And Tor Books had gotten a hold of the rights to Conan the Barbarian, which is a fairly famous property that goes back to the 1920s. They'd gotten the publishing rights to this and wanted somebody to write a new Conan the Barbarian novel but they needed to do it very fast. There was a movie coming out and things like, we need somebody to turn around a book quick. And Harriet was like, oh, I, I know by this point she'd married uh, Jim, Robert Jordan. So well, I, I know my husband could do it. Like, should we give it a shot? And she convinces him, you know, just write a novel, just do a Conan book. And he does, and it's a great book. And it does very well. And he ends up writing like six Conan books. And in the process is getting kind of a lot of traction, right? As a fantasy writer, as a writer of this kind of story. And he's offered up the chance. Do you want to write something on your own? Like something completely of your own making. And that's what he decides to do. And it becomes the Wheel of Time, which ultimately is a, you know, 14 book series, massive books. Um, it's millions of words. Okay. I they're, they average about 800 pages, don't they? Yeah, they're huge. They're doorstops. Yeah. yeah we, uh, you don't produce doorstops. I have done too, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm just thinking, well, let's just say 800 pages of finished book, 2,000 pages of manuscript. They're, the manuscripts are huge. And we, and we have the, the Rigney papers, an archive, an archive of his papers have been, been given to the College of Charleston in the special collections and so like we have a bunch of like the, the drafts these huge boxes of these of these pages it's amazing and that of course he was doing all this you know i i stagger to think about doing this kind of stuff with with my modern word processor and things and in the early goings you know he's doing a lot of this not in such ease as i can on an ipad and on my iphone and things uh this was a little bit a little bit harder when he started writing was he using a typewriter or a computer in the early goings he's using a typewriter uh but as quickly as possible he's moving to a modern word processor because it was just necessary i mean at, at the kind of scale he's working but but as you pointed out it still is going to create literally a pile oh yeah of a, of a manuscript. Oh, yeah. Now, you mentioned that in some of his chapters, which he was continuously, he was continuously rewriting, yeah. that in one chapter you noticed, well, the first part was maybe the 14th revision yeah. followed by the 32nd revision, you know. Yeah. Uh, but somehow he kept all this organized. That's what... <laughs> it's it's mind-boggling how he kept all this organizing. And, uh, you know, we have all his files. 
And so I can see how he was organizing things. And I'll, I'll just say, I could not have organized things that way. It's, it's a bit like, and I'm sure you kind of have this experience, right? As, as academics, we have huge libraries. And our library is kind of organized to us, right? You know, like, like where is the book? Oh, it's right over there. How do you know that? Because that's where it is. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was the same way for him. And looking at it from the outside is sort of bewildering. Why is that book with that book, you know, in the library? Like, why do you have those together? You're like, oh, I, and we have some weird esoteric reason, some personal thing for that. So, yeah, it was the case with him, too. Uh, he ultimately did have two assistants who were helping him to organize all this stuff, to keep track of things, you know, because it, he has such a sweeping cast of characters and has built thousands of years of history, multiple, multiple cultures with, uh, you know, the way they dress is different, the way they talk is different, the way all these things, it even became difficult for him sometimes to remember, you know, like, wait, like, what is that? What does that person look like? I, you know? <laughs> Do I, do I remember, you know, and so he'd, he'd have assistance to help check that, right? You know, and make sure that he was consistent all the way through. Well, you know, some writers have set their works in Charleston over time, different series. I read them sometimes just for fun. Like, Wait a minute. They've got King Street in the wrong location. Oh, don't Not, do that. Yeah. They have the wrong flowers blooming at the wrong time of the year. Oh, heaven forbid. Heaven forbid, the azaleas are only one kind of year. Oh, hey, the azaleas seem to be, well, yes, you you can get ever-blooming azaleas, but no real Southern writer would count those. (laughs) It's got to be the the old-fashioned indicas are one of the worst slips anybody, I think, made, referred to the camellia-scented past of the American South. Well, camellia japonicas do not have an odor. Yeah. That's, so. that's rough. That's hey. rough right there. <laughs> so. You know, and, and he, he worked hard to get that stuff right, even though this is a fantasy world. You know, among his notes are, are, are discussions uh, of trying to figure out the hardness of, of, of woods, right? The feel of different barks. The, you know, so if he describes, uh, you know, a character leaning against a pine tree, he wants it to be a pine tree, right? That's, that's different from leaning against an aspen or, or whatever, right? A pine tree feels a certain way, right? That bark has a texture. It has a hardness. It has a, the tree itself has a kind of stiffness. He was keeping track of all that stuff so that it was as correct as it could be, right? That if he, you know, he had the, the timings for animals, you know, how long they'd be pregnant for, right? You know, things like this. So if he mentioned at one point somebody sees an animal that's pregnant, the next time you go by that farm, like his animal, like he knew that he knew whether or not it would have given birth. Right. And, and are those things that most of us are going to notice? No. But if you do notice them, like the Japonicas, <laughs> like it's going to kick you right out of the story. Right. You, yeah. That's not right. You know, do your homework, man. Uh, so even though he's making it all up, he's trying to do his homework. Right. But of course, part of that is that he's making this up, but it's in our world. Uh, that's one of the sort of moves that that he makes here is this is a fantasy, but it is uh, within our reality, as it were. It's actually in our past and our future, the way he composes this. Well, Michael, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with Michael Livingston about one of his books, Origins of the Wheel of Time, of the life and career of Robert Jordan. All right. Career-wise, he was he was working for the government. Yeah, he with with Conan, he quits right and takes up writing full time. Yeah, he becomes a full time writer, yeah. and he he lives in Charleston. Yes, yes, uh, lives uh, in actually moves in with his new wife Harriet. She had a, a family home in Charleston, a beautiful home uh, downtown on the peninsula, and uh, takes up uh, residence in an office there and starts writing. Just starts cranking them out. And he does crank out books. Uh, you know, he's writing these huge, huge books. He's putting one of these out. He ultimately slows down a little bit, uh, but even when he slows down, it's like once every couple of years. That's that's really fast for something that large. Well, you're being modest. How many books did you come up with in the last two months? Uh, what was it? Not two books in the last. Yeah, I turned into. I yeah, I turned into two books in the last two weeks. Yeah. Okay, that's right. not normal. So that's your that's your kinship with Jordan, and I let, let's keep referring to him as Jordan because if yeah, you, he's he's writing literally until he gets ill. Yes, yes, he becomes ill 
with uh, a condition called amyloidosis. And there's not a long life expectancy for that. He, he had not completed the series. You know, at this point, he's got all these millions of readers around there. Every book is hitting number one on the New York Times. Enormously popular. And everybody's waiting for what is believed to be the last book. He's only got one book to go. And he had previously said, look, you know, in, in, in the case of my untimely death, you know, destroy all my notes, destroy it all. I don't want anybody seeing anything because he was such a, a steady reviser, right? He didn't want anybody to see it until he thought it was right. And that might be 30 drafts in. So he didn't want that. As he begins to, to recognize, you know, he's, he's not going to be able to write the last book. Um, he is his wife, Harriet, um, the assistants kind of, we call them all team Jordan begin putting together notes and everything, every scrap they can and asking him questions. And he's putting down words as much as possible, uh, to try and leave materials for somebody else to, to pick up the flag as it were and carry it forward and complete the series. Uh, unfortunately it does have to happen because he does die which you know, was a very traumatic experience for all his fans around the world. I, I only met him once. He was already very ill when I met him. And then I hear that he's died. And I was asked to give the um, speech uh, as, as part of inducting him into the South Carolina Academy of Authors, mm-hmm. which is how I could have got close with the estate. But uh, yeah, he doesn't finish it. It ends up having to be finished by another writer, then kind of a, a young writer. I say then, that kind of hurts. I think he's my age exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, so I'll say a young writer, because that makes me young. Uh, Brandon Sanderson has chosen to complete Now, he the was already a published writer. And his, I mean, yes, yes. He's already a published writer. He's published a couple books at that point through Tor Books, the same publisher that Jordan had. And he wrote on his blog a, a sort of statement about what Jordan had meant to him right after he found out that Jordan had died. And Harriet, Jordan's widow read that and uh, was moved by it and asked uh, the publisher to, to send her, you know, one of his books. Like, let me read one of this guy's books. And uh, as she tells the story, and I tell the story in, the, in, in Origins of the Will of Time, she read it uh, and fell asleep reading it and uh, is always very keen to point out, not because she was bored, not because it was bad, uh, but for the first time she felt uh, the relief that someone could do it, that there was somebody who could actually finish this and that, you know, letting that go as any of us who's been under that kind of stress can imagine. So he did three books to finish the series. He did three books. Yeah. He tried to do it in one and uh, the more they got into it, the more that the publisher was sort of like, how long is this going to be? And it's, well, it's looking like this many pages and like, we can't, we can't bind to that, right? We can't actually physically make a book that big. Uh, but to tie all these millions of words like together into an ending, it was going to be huge. And so they ultimately said, well, we got to break it up. We can't just do a single book. And then it was whether or not it was going to be two or three. And, and the decision is ultimately reached to make it three so that each book can kind of have its own narrative arc. So yeah, it wasn't, they weren't trying to like, you know, draw it out or something like that. They were simply trying to give it the best conclusion they could and did, I, I think, a marvelous job. Well, and these books still sell. Oh, yeah. They Not still Not just sell. the last three, the whole series still sells. The whole, the whole series still sells. Uh, it is a, a very popular and continues to be very popular work. The, the Amazon series, I think, has given it, you know, another huge boost. The audiobooks are being re-released. There's, there's some wonderful audiobooks that are already out. Okay, now, good grief, Art, an 800-page book released as an audio book. How many hours would that be? It's a lot. It can get you to, to San Francisco and back driving. Yeah, it's right? like a 24-hour listen. It's, it's nuts. Uh, but, they, but they're fantastic audio books. I mean, they really are. And, uh, and now they're, they're redoing them. Uh, the actress who plays one of the main characters in the series, Rosamund Pike, who's an amazing actress, uh, she's doing audiobooks for it now. Um, so you kind of have two choices for the audiobook. It's, it is a, I mean, it's a, it's a phenomenon. It's a cultural phenomenon. It's a social phenomenon. You know, recognizing that made the, I think this is the hardest book I've ever written uh, because of that, because you know, I know what it means to people. 
Okay, Michael, back to Jordan. He was a graduate of the Citadel in engineering. Yeah, physics, uh, but yeah. Yet he becomes one of their more famous alumni, along with Pat Conroy, who was an English major. Yes, yes, he was. <laughs> at, 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 the, at the Citadel. And I was just, just curious his, what his association was with the college once he hit the big time, not as a nuclear engineer, but as a fantasy <laughs> writer. Yeah, he you know, he incorporates a lot of the Citadel into these books. Um, which I find kind of magnificent. All right. um, well, t- t- give us an example. So, I think the you know the iconic thing of the Citadel campus, right, is Paget Thomas Barracks, the, the sort of big white tower uh, on campus. That's that's the iconic image. That's our branding. That's you know that's everything. Everybody visits and sees it. Uh, well, one of the most iconic buildings in the Wheel of Time is the White Tower. Yeah, that's that's our that's our Paget Thomas Barracks, right? He's he's sort of taken the landscape of of the Citadel. Um, and of Charleston and of South Carolina and and worked it in here, right? You know, Francis Marion is in these books, not as Francis Marion, but like somebody who is Francis Marion because the way that the the series works is is what you're seeing is both, because time is a wheel, both our past and our future. And in every age, certain figures, if you will, kind of come back. So there's a, a King Arthur in the books. It's not it's not King Arthur, but it's a King Arthur figure. There is a Swamp Fox figure. There is like they, they show up all the time. Uh, some of it is kind of Easter egg I stuff. I think kind of uh, surprises for him, right? You know, naming a, a family after Congaree. So he's he's built in all of this attachment to our to our world. It's it's fantasy, but it's it's tied to our world and is meant to kind of talk about our world, you know, ultimately, um, you know, it's not just frivolous fun. He's, he's, uh, making some serious commentaries about the world. So the Citadel is kind of always there in the books themselves. You know, he himself, you know, didn't live that far from campus, um, you know, would come, uh, and visit campus. He gave his, uh, much of his library to the Citadel. Um, he was deeply interested in military history. Uh, which, you know, as a military historian myself, uh, I, I find kind of, you know, magnificent. I'll get a book from the library and open it up, and I'll, oh, this is one of this is one of Jordan's copies. Like that's crazy. So I'm very grateful to him for that. And you know, he, like Conroy, had a love for the Citadel, right? You know, Conroy's relationship with the Citadel was complicated. Yes, um, as is as is well known. Uh, but I think the the two of them nevertheless kind of carried that love for the place with them, um, you know, throughout their lives. My first getting in contact with Jordan was actually through, through Pat. Uh, when I came to the Citadel, I was given the task of running the uh, creative writing journal for the school called the Shaco. And Pat Conroy had once written for the Shaco as a, as a young lad. And I thought, you know, we need to have some creative writing awards uh, for the, for the cadets. Wouldn't it be cool if, if it was named for, for Pat, one was named for Pat Conroy. Uh, and so I just wrote him just out of the blue, like, Hey, I'm a new professor at the Citadel. I knew nothing about the troubles as it were. I knew, I knew nothing about, I was just like, Hey, famous alumnus, you know, Hey buddy. <laughs> and, uh, and cause he calls me and we ended up talking for like two, three hours, uh, and got, got to be, uh, uh very friendly, a uh, terrific, terrific guy. And he, he was like, yeah, I think this is a great idea. Absolutely. You can use it. You know, use my name, my likeness, whatever. You, you know, you should also make sure that, that, that Jordan's a part of this. I'll, I'll let him know that you're calling, you know, kind of thing. And <laughs> all right, I guess I'm, I guess I'm talking to our two biggest alumni now. So yeah, they, they both had this connection and love. And, uh, obviously I wouldn't want to kind of speak for them about their opinions on anything, but, uh, but uh, it's, it's certainly there in the books and I try and highlight that. Michael, what separates Jordan's fantasy from others? Why? How is his world different? Well, you know, when you get into into fantasy literature, I, I, I would never want to comp- uh, say that something is completely unique, right? Everything is organically drawn from everything else. Um, but one thing that does kind of set him and and some others apart, I think Tolkien included, is this connectivity they have to our world that you can find in the Wheel of Time, as I said earlier, the Swamp Fox, you know, Francis Marion and things like that, uh, that those are in there in a way that is not going to happen if you're sort of making this uh, 
whole cloth and that it's not the it's it's not that this is a, a cheat you know where jordan couldn't think of anything and so he used that it, it's actually integral to what he's creating and what he's kind of commenting on because ultimately he really is talking about our world it, he intended it to be a sort of uh corrective to uh, a lot of kind of masculine centered uh fantasies he really does get a lot into it about uh genders and about uh, how men and women kind of really need to kind of work, you know, together for the for the purpose of the world, uh, in a way that he kind of hadn't really seen a lot of writers doing. Not that he's the first to ever imagine anything like this, but this is something he felt needed to be said and needed to be done, and that was part of it. So it, obviously, in scope, I mean, look to make something this huge. This it's an it's it's an amazing just from a a, a simply astonishment of imaginative power right it's it's i get the same feeling looking at it that that i get looking at uh you know dante's divina commedia right you know you you, you look at at the inferno purgatorio paradiso they go hey, that's a that's a lot that's a lot of poetry man like that's and that's really controlled poetry too like that's a that's a lot of work and it's just astonishing on that basis alone i mean i i think dante's magnificent as well uh, there's something to that, you know, just the enormity of the undertaking and to have done this, uh, as, as one human mind is pretty extraordinary. Well, I, I think you mentioned earlier that he brought a book out about every two years. Yeah. Uh, we both know authors, not necessarily personally, who bring out a book a year and several of them as another writer friend of mine pointed out with each successive one the type font gets a little bit larger <laughs> and the paper gets a little bit thicker. Nice. And you think you you think you are getting the same size book you might have the, the second or third. But no, it's actually, they've got that deadline. They got to have a darn book out. And uh, yeah. so the publishers figured out how to pad it. <laughs> yeah. Well, one guy who is particularly noted for dialogue, Michael, how are you? Next slide. Fine. <laughs> you can you can fill a lot of pages that way. You can fill a lot of yeah, but but, but this this is not the case with George. This is not the case. I I, I mean, he's uh, the world gets bigger and deeper with every book. Uh, you know, he thought this was going to be three books, maybe push it to five, become six. All right, well maybe it's going to be eight. No, it's going to be nine. It's going to well okay, it's going to be twelve. It ends up being fourteen yeah. plus a prequel. Like it's it's huge. So he didn't start out to write 12 books. No, no, no. He, he, thought, he thought he could wrap this up a lot quicker. Uh, one of the things that, that, that does happen is, and I think kind of beautifully, he sets off with one particular kind of outline. And along the way, his characters move past that outline and, and basically blow it up. And... Uh, you know, there are some writers who would sort of say, no, this is the outline, you know, damn it, get, get in line, right? You got to, you got to do what I, you were supposed to do. And, and he doesn't do that. He, he says, oh, you were supposed to turn right, but you went left. All right. Well, what's down that road? Right. And, and starts kind of following it organically. And it's because the, the characters to some degree had become kind of real, Right. And I know this, you know, as a, as a writer of fiction myself, because, you know, in addition to this kind of stuff, I write fiction, you know, that happens when you have fully realized characters, you absolutely intend them to do one thing and you're writing and they're doing something else. And it's like, who's in control of this? I, I thought I was doing it. Uh, and, and the willingness to go all in with that, that he did, uh, makes for these absolutely amazing characters that again, you know, people name their children for that, you know, they're they're alive to to people, and that's cool. All right, you mentioned Francis Marion and King Arthur. Who are some of the other figures, so to speak, that are figure types that yeah. he brings into these this series? Well, because he can kind of grab from anywhere in history, it is a huge, huge swath. Uh, and I know that I haven't found them all. I know that. Uh, you know, he, he, he knew more than I did. 
And uh, okay. so, or did you identify Francis Marion, or was there a spoiler that Harriet told you this was Francis Marion? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. Yeah. So, I mean, I had access to all the notes. Oh, okay. And so, some of the notes are pretty direct, right? This this person is that person from history or mythology legend. Other ones are, you know, I was told, and other ones are me kind of putting, you know, reading the tea leaves, right, and saying, well, this this looks this looks right. And in the book, I, I kind of try in my, the way I describe things to sort of differentiate between like, I know this versus, you know, I'm 90% sure, I'm 80% sure. And I only try to put in things I was really pretty sure about. Um, but yeah, there's, there's King Arthur, there's Francis Marion, there's John Glenn is in there. Mother Teresa gets a, gets a shout out, uh, you know, in the middle of, middle of things. And some of these are throwaway references like you know i won't say throwaway like they're trash or but just you know like a, a quick aside that nobody's going to catch um and others are you know this is integral to that person's character right he has a, a character who basically invents gunpowder in the course of the books figures out how to manipulate gunpowder for uh for artillery uh well that person's named for uh thomas mendenhall who was an american revolutionary uh I think is an ensign uh, aboard the brig Nancy that that blew it up when it ran aground. It was full of uh, uh, gunpowder. They took all the gunpowder they could get off it. They knew the British were coming, uh, left a, a couple casks on there and lit a fuse so that when the British came aboard, it blew up on them. <laughs> and, you know, like that's, I mean, I think that's a marvelous bit of history. And here Jordan had come across that and thought, you know, that connects to that. That's who I'm going to name this character for. Like, I'm going to use that, right? Like, who's going to see that? Like, did he in, did he think anybody would ever see it? I, I don't know. Obviously, when I sort of saw it, I'm like, wow, like, that's amazing that you would do this. So it is It is a wide gamut of stuff from, and I've mostly been marrying, uh, you know, using American history things here. You know, he's got things from, from French history. He's got things from, uh, you know, his time in Vietnam, he, he learned a great deal about uh, about mythologies and 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 people uh, events over there, he incorporates all that stuff too. So it's it's kind of like human history, sort of smushed in uh, and and uh, recast in this series. And so the world of fantasy is quite different from the world of alternative history. It, it is and. Yeah, and isn't right. You know, I mean, it's in this case, it's it's uh, it is telling a our stories, but is is telling them kind of through a veil, right? Um, and it's not it's not saying this is the real story of right, um, but but here is a story uh, that could happen to someone who is and is not King Arthur, right? It's a bit of a philosophical puzzle, I suppose, in that regard. Well, I, I mean. There have been a number of, well, the South wins the Civil War, and this is yeah. how, how they do it, and yeah. and carry it into the twenty first century, and you know, and that that kind of thing, yeah, uh, which is fun, yeah, uh, it's delightful, uh, but yeah, this isn't that. This is uh, this is its own uh, sort of creation that that again is is neither it's not us, it's our past and it's our future as a different us. Yeah, it's mind-boggling uh, how he thought of this. Which I, I, I mean, I've told the whole story, and I'm and I'm like, I don't, I don't know how he did this in a sense. All right, well, Michael, we need to pause for a moment. Let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Michael Livingston about one of his books, Origins of the Wheel of Time, of the life and career of Robert Jordan. Let's move from Robert Jordan to Michael Livingston. Uh oh, you finished your two books. Yeah. Which are? Uh, so the last two books I turned in, I'll have a novel come out before these come out, but uh, the last two books I turned in were a uh, study of the Battle of Agincourt, uh, 1415. Uh, so that's Henry V and all that. I think it's a great book. I, it's You have rewritten history in terms of 
landscape archaeology. You've you've done that. So you're doing taking the you're taking the most probably the most revered battle in English history. And what have you done to it? That you know you're making me nervous, man. Why? No, ma- I'm, I know. I, no, hey, <laughs> hey, you you sold me on your first two. <laughs> I do. I do change the Battle of Agincourt. Yeah, uh, not as not as it doesn't change as much as Crazy. Crazy. You know, crazy. If, if I'm correct, is wildly off. Um, this, you know, we know basically where this thing is. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's like 700 yards from where everybody thinks it is. Um, but, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some people upset by that. But I'm like, the facts are the facts. What do you want me to do? So, so yeah, I do the Battle of Agincourt. Yeah, you're right. Your book on crazy folks did have to. Oh, oops, we were a little bit off location. Yeah. Yeah, had did they have they corrected it? No, uh, no. I mean, I, and and they shouldn't until until archaeological digs are done and we have confirmation, right? I mean, uh, up until that happens, both my uh, perspective and the traditional one are are. I mean, I may think I have a far better argument and I don't have as many problems, but. I can't prove it, right? All I can say is like, this makes so much more sense. Archaeological digs have not been done yet. Yep. So until that happens now, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm confident enough to be like, like I, I'm pretty sure where the English line is. I know the range of the longbow, dig here and a meter down, there's a bunch of arrowheads, right? But I can't do that. Hey. If, if I were manager of a very successful historic site, I would schedule that archaeological dig for the twelfth of never, <laughs> <laughs> and that is a long, long. Time. That's a long time. That's a long time. Uh, so yeah, I've 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 gone and, and hit Agincourt, uh, so that's going to be fun. And then the other book is actually co-written with um, a fellow uh, historian who does ancient history, and named Mike Cole. And we've written a book called The Killing Ground, a biography of Thermopylae. So Thermopylae is, you know, 480 BC, Leonidas, the Spartans, the 300 Spartans, uh, all that business, a fairly, also a fairly famous event in history. Uh, some people say this is the most famous battle in history, uh, is the Battle of Thermopylae. And what we've done is is take my ideas of landscape and, and you know, reconstructing uh, medieval ancient landscapes and using that to inform what we can see about conflict and apply that to, to Thermopylae and apply it not just to the most famous battle of Thermopylae, the 300 uh, Spartans. There was actually way more than that, but we get into that in the book uh, and, and that battle, but actually to show that that was, wasn't even the first battle of Thermopylae. And then in fact, there's 2,500 years of killing in in that few square miles of area uh, because of its geographical location. I mean, there's there's a World War II Nazi Panzer tanks are trying to get through the Pass of Thermopylae and being <laughs> fought off by Anzac soldiers. Like it's a, it's unreal how much conflict there's been there. And so we trace all of it. And the idea being that, you know, this is a kind of a, a cauldron of warfare, right? We can look at the same terrain it's the tr- terrain is obviously changing over time right but you know this is the same area and 2500 years of war happening here as warfare changes from like you know again spartans in their gear to panzer tanks rolling through <laughs> to even after even after that uh you know uh, uh, allied saboteurs blowing up viaducts to prevent trains from getting through the same area it's it's uh it's a really extraordinary spot. So we've written a, a book about that, and I think it will come out late this year or early next year. And and when will Agincourt come out? Agincourt is scheduled to come out in uh, October. I think like October tenth or something. Well, I'll make sure Alfred takes a note because <laughs> uh, by that by that time you'll probably have three more out. <laughs> okay, all right. D- counting your fiction. How many books have you written in your professional career? I don't know. Is that a bad answer? I don't know. Uh, fiction, it's seven books, um, or will be, because I've, I've got the, the, the novel coming out uh, the, in March, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to, have to sit down and count them on the CV. 
That's a lot. You, you mean you don't have to fill out an annual report that you turn in? Uh, <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do. I think it's due this week. Uh, yeah, whenever that happens, I, I, I have to basically spend a day like going back through the previous year. Look, I bet you give your department chair and your dean fits and you say, because they still do management by objective, right? During this year, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And you say, two books. And the chair's going to say, oh, damn, it's more than the entire department put together. <laughs> well, I'm not going to comment on such things. I'm just going to say, uh, yeah, no. I, I am incredibly, I'm really honestly, truly incredibly fortunate that the Citadel, my department, my colleagues, I'm basically just let Mike do his thing, right? Like, what, is, what does he need? Let's, let's try and get in that so that he has, you know, time, space, um, the means to do this. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I guess that's because I have a track record of like, you, you give me X, I give you Y, you know? And, um, and so I've been really fortunate. I know not everybody, I'm obviously fortunate to be, have a position in academia at all, uh, given the market right now, but, uh, the Citadel has been very, very good to me and I'm, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. Well, that, that speaks well to them. I, no, I, I no, think no, I think so. No, no, no. no. I mean, I mean, uh, the the academy continues to change. Uh, yeah, I retired ten years ago, and uh, glad I retired when I did from the academy, uh, because talking to my younger colleagues, it's not the same world. And so, it, it it's I mean everything changes, right? It, it, it always is. But yeah, it's it's rough, and and I am yeah incredibly fortunate that you know when I say to my department. Yeah, my next book is is on this fantasy series. I, all I get is like high fives, you know, and like nobody nobody looks askance and says, "Wow, you know." Rah. I'm like, "No, that sounds great." I was, well, after that, I'm going to do a book on on Agincourt. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> all right, uh, okay. This is personal. We we know where Jordan are all Jordan's papers at the College of Charleston. Most of them, okay. Most of them. Now they're not all publicly accessible, and they're are some materials that are not there. Well, only reason I asked is because you are amassing a lot of papers. Have you have you thought about what you want to do with the Michael <laughs> Livingston papers? Oh, that's that is an uh, that is a step of ego too far for me. Um it, you know, and it's also I was thinking about this not <laughs> not in terms of me uh, because that's that's crazy, but I was thinking about this and working through his papers how magnificent it is that we have these materials. I and mean, we have, you know, scraps of paper that he, you know, doodled something on 30, 40 years ago. Most modern writers, we're not going to have that, right? I mean, you know, I do my work exclusively digitally now when I'm making corrections on, on Agincourt or whatever, when I'm doing revisions or on my novels, there's not, there's one copy. You're not. You're not saving. Yeah, I'm not saving version two. Yeah, version three to version four. Yeah, I don't do that. You know, so if somebody, if somebody was, you know, this this novel of Livingston's is absolutely incredible. How did he do this? Yeah, you're gonna have nothing because I I overwrote the file. Right. That's just kind of how I operate because I can undo through the word processing. I can undo to get the changes I need. Uh, so yeah, I think. Gosh, this is unfortunate. It is. It's so wonderful what this technology has given to us, but it's going to make the kind of research that I've done for Origins of the Wheel of Time incredibly difficult for anybody on a lot of, of modern writers. Yeah. I mean, for example, I mentioned one chapter, the first part was from the third revision, then yeah. it jumped to the, I mean, you were able to do that because of the way. Because yeah. <laughs> it's paper, there. His papers were organized, and that's not going to that's not going to happen. Yeah, it's just not going to happen, and and that's a, a huge loss. I mean, even to the point of, you know, I I could, I could say, well, did Robert Jordan read this book? Well, let me look at his library. Right there's, I forget what it was fourteen thousand volumes in his library or something like that. You know, like is it in there? Yeah, it's in there. Did he crack it? Yeah. So I'm feeling pretty good about it. I mean, half of our libraries are digital now. You know, how are you going to track that down? You're, you know, you're not going to be able to. So yeah, there, it, is this, it is this kind of, this weird sort of sense of loss that I, I feel as a researcher. Um, it, I mean, that 
to some degree feels familiar because this is what I deal with in my in in the ancient world, the medieval world, right? We got so few pieces of information and we're trying to coalesce a clear picture from that. So in some degrees that that's going to feel familiar, but but having been exposed to a project like Origin of the Wheel of Time in which I had everything I could possibly want, which I've never had in looking at an ancient or medieval battle, right? That I could talk to somebody who was there. Like, are you kidding? Right? I, I can, because I was able to talk to anybody I wanted. Like, if you want to talk to the, to his editor at Tor uh, or, or his copy editor, you want to talk to the owner of Tor who was his friend, you want to talk to uh, his, his editor wife, Harriet, who do you want to talk to? They're on the phone. Uh, that's, that's cool. And all those papers, man, it's a gold mine. It's a treasure trove. Just not going to be there for other other writers. Well, let's move back to the Wheel of Time and the television series. Uh, is Harriet involved in that in any way? Not directly. No, I mean, obviously, she was involved in the uh, you know the rights management and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the you know the rights having been handed over, the 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 voices that are making those decisions are all kind of internal to the show. Um, so yeah, they're, they're not, uh, I don't think they're asking Harriet questions. Um, Brandon Sanderson, the person who kind of completed the series after, after Jordan's death, he has had a lot of give and take with them, but even so like that, there's a certain point at which that ends and the quote unquote kind of Hollywood folk take over, right? They've got a show to make and the, and they don't need, uh, us in the, in okay. the picture. So it is. I have not seen this series. Have you seen this series? I have, yes. Okay. Is this a case of it, it follows Jordan's work or have they bought the idea and then they have their own story? Uh, so it's a little divergent. It's a little divergent. And that's that's bothered some people. It doesn't it doesn't bother me. I, I have a fairly easy time of, of divorcing right written word versus visual communication and, and the kind of choices that have to be made. So, uh, yeah, they've changed some, uh, some characters a little bit. They've changed some plots. Uh, they're trying to, I think, stay very true to, uh, the overall object of what Jordan was doing and trying not to change it a great deal, but also well aware that, you know, look, he, he was writing these things 30 years ago. We can't quite do it the same way he did it. You know, we have a new kind of audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we need to, you know, maybe speed up a plot line here, slow this one down, uh, introduce information earlier, you know, to help viewers uh, keep up with things. So they're inevitably making those choices. And, and, and I think that's as it should be, right? If you, if you tried to make anything, any book shot for shot, uh, to the pages, like it's, it's just not going to work. It's a different medium. So you have to be aware of that, of that difference. Uh, so I, I mean, I think they're doing a terrific job. I, I think I've I've said in some interviews, uh, the only things that that sort of give me pause about what they've done are the same things that give me pause anytime uh, somebody in Hollywood is doing a a quote unquote kind of medieval thing, you know, and that's me getting upset about the armor or whatever, you know. I'm like, that's just not how you do that, you know. We'll see. You get upset about the army. I get upset about the camellias should not be smelling. Yeah. Or, or you've got azaleas blooming in the middle of July. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's that's... Same thing, man. It's the same thing. We, we're we sticklers for for what uh, for what we love and, and what and what we appreciate. And that's that's okay. Okay. All right. It's hard to believe that Alfred has given me the wind-up sign. I think his clock moves faster than ours does. Yes, that is not right. Yeah. So uh, any last words for our listeners before we sign off? Yeah, I... You know, I hope the, the, the book I, I said earlier is it's very difficult to write. And, and part of the difficulty of how to write it was this is a, a, a series that is that some people have read once. Some people haven't read, but they loved the TV show. Uh, some people are just simply curious about this thing. And some people read these books in a way that I can only describe as religious. Right. You know, they, they read the entire series. They get to the end, take a deep breath, go back to the start and start reading again. And they know the, the ins and outs of every character and every possible thing in it. And to be sort of tasked with 
putting all this together and with all of those disparate people potentially being my audience uh, was was very difficult. It was very hard. You know, I want it to be accessible to those who don't know the stories, but I also want it to be educational for the most diehard fans possible. Because uh, they all are, to my eyes, kind of equally part of, of Jordan's reach. I, I can only hope that, uh, you know, those people who are reading it you know, are finding uh, at least some part of it to be interesting, whether it's talking about what fantasy literature even is or its place in the world or, or what Jordan did uh, or even the intricate de details of the world. If you think you might appreciate uh, fantasy literature uh, or even want somebody to try and convince you to appreciate fantasy liter literature, uh, you know, maybe maybe the book will work for you because that's one of the things I try to do is, is set out, you know, why this kind of literature is important and why Robert Jordan holds such an integral place in that story. Well, you wrote it so that those of us who were uninitiated uh, could understand it and appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, as always, Michael, it's been a pleasure to have you today on The Journal. Thanks for having me. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was a pleasure having Michael Livingston back on the show, especially to discuss the origins of the Wheel of Time and locate some of the mythologies and legends that Robert Jordan used. And among the inspirations for Robert Jordan were his native state, his native city, and his alma mater. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of the journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio. Thank you.